us for the first time. I just want to give you a really warm welcome to Central. And uh, if you don't have to rush off afterwards, we would love to have a cup of tea, cup of coffee with you. We'd love to hear a little bit about your journey and encourage you in your faith walk. So today, um, if you have joined us the first time, you joined us on a great Sunday because we're just starting our series in the book of Ephesians. We're doing it a little bit different in the sense of today we're starting kind of um, a fifth of the way through it. We're starting in chapter two. Uh, but our, our new vicar, Tim, he's going to be uh, bringing the word to us, I think, on the, what, Sunday? 22nd of October, and I know he's on his heart to want to preach from Ephesians 1. So uh, today we're going to start in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10, but just really briefly, just want to give you a quick overview, and I mean a very quick overview of the book of Ephesians. The author of the book of Ephesians is the Apostle Paul. He wrote it in prison in Rome, and he really structured it into two basic halves. The first half of the book of Ephesians is really a theological presentation of the gospel. And by the end of chapter three, when you're reading it, it really should move us to worship. The second half of the, chap- of the book of Ephesians is explaining what our life would look like if it has been changed by the gospel. And by the time we get to the end of chapter six, we should be challenged to live out the Christ-like life. But this morning, Tim has asked me to speak on Ephesians 2, verses eight to 10. But before we read it, let's see what the Apostle Paul was saying in the build-up to these verses. He starts in chapter one by praising God that we, he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. As he then describes the new life that we have when we are in Christ. He then ends the chapter in prayer as he asks Father to open our eyes so that we might grasp the fullness of the blessing of being in Christ. We then enter chapter two where Paul then paints this vivid contrast between what man is by nature, dead in his sin, a slave who lives in constant condemnation, and what we can become by God's grace, forgiven, set free, sons for eternity. And then we come to the last three verses of this contrast, where Paul states, for it is by grace that he, you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. This faith is the gift of God, not by work so that no man can boast. For we are God's handiwork. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, these three verses... They separate Christianity from every other religion in the world. You see, every religion bar Christianity says, do more good works than bad works and you shall be saved. But what Christianity is saying is, you can only be saved by Christ's work on the cross. Your good works, they cannot save you. And this you must accept by faith. But when you do, you will only wanna do one thing in response and that is, good works. Why? Because you are so grateful for God's saving grace. So what does God want to say to us here at Central this morning through what is undoubtedly one of the most fundamental set of verses in Christian theology? 
Well, I know that Tim Brown's heart for this mini-series is that the book of Ephesians will help us step into our new future as a church in freedom, as we leave behind past disappointment and hurt. And so today, I'd love to lay a foundation that enables us to do just this by sharing some of my own journey through church and leadership transitions and how on these journeys, Father God has graciously used this simple truth of Ephesians 2.8. I am saved by grace, not by works, so that no man can boast, to help me step into my God-given future in freedom. So I'd like to invite you on a journey to come back with me into the year 2007. It's a year when the iPhone was first released, Man United won the Premier League, and the film No Country for Old Men had the highest MDB rating. And I'd been an associate pastor at an Assemblies of God church in Bristol for about three to four years. Now, personally, those years had been really fruitful for me as I'd learnt what it was to be a pastor and a teacher of God's word. And then during 2007, we learned that an Australian church who we were in very close relationship with was gonna plant its first international congregation in our city, in our part of Bristol. And as elders through prayer and fasting, we believed that God was asking us to lay everything down as a church and become part of what God was gonna do through this church plant. Personally, that meant laying down my title, my role, the platform I was on, and my job. It sounded really easy in theory because I knew it was right that God was asking us to do this. But in practice, I was about to discover that this was gonna be a lot harder than I thought. Why? Why was it gonna be so hard? I guess because in the busyness and success of those three to four years, I had forgotten just how amazing grace was. And I'd bought into the lie of just how great Rob was and how great his works were. Just a small example of how I'd bought into this lie was when I was in an elders meeting one time. And one of the elders said, oh, Rob needs a bigger platform for his preaching gift to be heard. What do you do with a comment like that? Well, what you should do is thank the person give glory to God and then give it fully back to God and continue to serve him out of this revelation that I am saved by grace alone. But I didn't do that. I didn't do that because I'd forgotten just how amazing this grace was. I'd forgotten the wonder of the gospel and therefore I'd forgotten what the apostle Paul had taught the Roman church about the effect the gospel should have on my life where he says, therefore brothers, I urge you in view of God's mercy, in view of the cross, in view of the gospel, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, <coughs> holy and pleasing to God. This is your act of worship. I had forgotten that when you're saved by grace, all you wanna do in response is live a life of gratitude, a life that brings glory to God, not glory to Rob. And if you're here for the first time this morning and this word grace is the word that you've not heard before, you might be asking the question, well, hold on a minute, why? I mean. What is so amazing about grace that I should live the rest of my life with a heart of gratitude, seeking to bring glory to the one who saved me? 
Well, look, I'm glad you asked the question. Because that's a question we actually need to answer. But before we answer that question, I want to ask, answer another one, a more fundamental question. And that question is simply this. What are we being saved from? The answer to that question is in the first two verses of Ephesians chapter 2, where it says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in his letter to the Roman church. He says, The wages of sin, what you earn from your disobedience to God, is death. That is separation from God both now and eternally. We're being saved from our sin and its consequence, death. So another question, therefore, should arise in us. Well, hold on a minute. Why can't we just save ourselves by doing more good things than bad? I mean, every other religion in the world teaches us this, so why can't we do that? Well, let's go to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 64, verse 4 or 6, I can't remember which one it is, it says this, All of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That word filthy rags is a very, very polite English translation for the literal meaning. The literal Hebrew just means menstruation cloth. What is a menstruation cloth? It is a cloth that holds something that once had life, a woman's egg, it had the potential for life, but now it has no potential at all. It can never, ever produce life. And that's what our righteous acts, our good works are like in God's eyes. They are dead, incapable of producing life. Jesus tells us the reason for this in John 8, 34. He says, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. See, the reason why we're incapable of saving ourselves through our good works is that we are slaves to sin. It controls us. We don't control sin, that every time we try and do good works to make amends for sin, what do we end up doing? Sinning. It controls us, we don't control it. Therefore we need a solution that is outside of ourselves. We need someone else to save us. But that person who is required to save us must fulfill two fundamental conditions. The first condition is they must be someone who themselves is without sin, who is therefore not a slave to sin. And that's a big problem. Why? Well, Romans 3.23 tells us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Secondly, if we were able to find a sinless man, then they would also need to be willing to do what? They would be willing to want to save us. They would need to love and care for us enough to be willing to take our place, to pay our punishment, to die our death. I hope it's clearer now than ever why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.1 that we, humanity, were dead in our transgressions. We simply cannot save ourselves. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. That's why it's called the gospel, the good news. For yes, the wages of sin is death, but the verse continues. <coughs> the gift of God, that which I could not earn, is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, 
God himself stepped into history in the person of Jesus Christ for the single purpose of saving us from our sin. The Apostle John says this in 1 John 3 verse 5, but you know that he, Jesus Christ, appeared so that he might take away our sins for in him is no sin. This God who the Bible tells us is righteous in all his ways, majestic in his holiness, without iniquity, without sin, he took on flesh. John 1 verse 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God. The Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Jump to verse 14. This Word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. His name, this word, Jesus Christ. God incarnate, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, without sin. He was able, condition one, ticked. His motive, love. He was willing. Condition two, ticked, Romans 5, 8 tells us, and God demonstrates his own love. In this, whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ, God in the flesh, he came to earth to save us from our sins because he was both able and willing to do this. And this is the grace of God. That God himself would give himself to save us from himself. Let's just take a moment to consider the enormity of that statement. God himself, the creator, the sustainer of life, the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, all-caring king of kings, this holy, pre-existent, immutable God of glory, he gave himself. He exchanged heaven for earth, the throne of grace for a manger, his all-sufficient supremacy for the body of a baby for the single purpose of saving us from himself. By becoming our substitute, by dying our death, consider the enormity of what it cost God to save us from eternal death. It cost him everything. Now consider the magnitude of what Christ's cross and his resurrection has won for you. Forgiveness from every sin you've ever committed, freedom from the control of sin in our lives, adoption into God's family, where he is our father and we are his sons, co-heirs with Christ, the king of kings, the gift of eternal life, this steadfast hope of knowing that when we die, we will be with Christ in heaven for eternity. This is what Christ has done, and we had nothing to do with it. God's grace is amazing, and that is an understatement. God's grace, it causes me not just to want to worship in, in, in the here and now, but it also makes me want to live a life of worship, a life which lives for the glory of God, not the glory of Rob. It's a life 
which performs works not to give myself value, but is motivated instead to do them from a posture of gratitude in response to God's grace. And yet there I was, this 37-year-old pastor, being told Rob needs a bigger platform for his preaching to be heard from. And what did I do with those comments? Well, I didn't give them back to God and give him the glory. No, I, I chose to harbor those comments, that compliment in the port of my heart. I took pride in it. And you see, the problem with pride is that pride has a favorite son. Do you know what his name is? His name is insecurity. You know, when you're controlled more by uh, what other people think of you, how much they value you compared to what God thinks of you and how he values you. And so this insecurity has started to very quickly work its way out of me. See, it meant the world to me if I was asked to do something that I thought others would value as important. Equally, I was so easily offended if I, was asked, if I wasn't asked to do things that I thought were important to do. I found that especially in the areas of church and ministry, I needed constant affirmation. I became like a drug addict who needed a fix of affirmation uh, to, to make me feel valued. I would come off the platform and if I didn't get 10 pats on the back saying, Rob, that was a great word, I didn't feel validated. Title, position, performance, the platform determined my value. And as such, they started to define me. My identity was starting to be found in these things. And then towards the end of 2007, a team from the Australian church came over to Bristol as they were preparing for the campus to start in 2008. Lots of meetings were happening. And I soon discovered that I wasn't invited to many. Unsurprisingly, this really affected me. It hurt my pride, I, I took offense, I felt undervalued, I felt unwanted. On one of those days, I was heading off to the church office after working at French A in the morning. I, at that time, I worked uh, part-time as a physio in the morning, <coughs> sorry, and part-time as a pastor in the afternoon. And I realized that the pastor who I led the church with had my church office keys. So I phoned him to see where he was so that I could get them from him. So I called him, I said, oh, you know, where are you? I need to get my keys. And the response was, well, we're in the curry house, Rob. We're having a meeting. Thoughts immediately invaded my mind. Why am I not invited? I should be in that meeting. Surely they need my wisdom. Surely they need my input. I felt unwanted. I got on my bike, I started the bike ride from the hospital to the curry house. And as I rode home, I was going further and further up the high moral ground. I was winning every argument in my head. And as a result, I was getting angrier and angrier and more and more bitter. I got to the post office sorting center on the A38. I was a few minutes from the curry house and I came to my senses and I said to God, Father, if you don't do something right now, if you don't speak to me right now, I'm going to walk into that curry house. I'm going to say something that I'm going to regret for the rest of my life. God, you've got to say something. And in that moment, I did not hear an audible voice, but I definitely experienced a still, small voice of God, a deep impression. God was speaking to me. He simply said, Rob... 
salvation is enough. Serving me is the greatest privilege of your life. It was like a hammer smashing stone because I understood in that moment that pride and insecurity had taken hold in my life as my value was being determined by my own efforts and works and that Father was now wanting me to find my value afresh in the wonder of the gospel, that I was saved by grace alone. Simply he wanted me to find my value in Christ again and so the journey started. This train of God's revelation that salvation is enough, serving Jesus is the greatest privilege of my life, had left the station of my mind, and now it was beginning its long journey to the station of my heart. And the fuel for this journey, well, I kid you not, it was the first two chapters of Ephesians. Now, we don't have time this morning for me to unpack all that God taught me regarding my value in Christ through these chapters, but... I just wanna highlight three verses to you. The first is Ephesians 1 verse four. And the Apostle Paul says this, for he chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. You see, the first thing God taught me was that how he sees me in Christ. He sees me as perfect. See, the wonder of grace is that before there was a savannah or a jungle, a sunset or a sunrise, a mountain or a valley, he chose us. He chose us in Christ, that is, by his grace, to be holy and blameless in his sight. This means, therefore, that God did not choose you because of your ability or your good works, your popularity or achievements. No, he simply chose you because he wanted to. Because he loved you. And as I pondered this truth each day, I could see so clearly again that before I get out of bed in the morning, before I do anything right or wrong, because I am in Christ, he can only see me one way. Perfect. When I get back into bed at night, however good or bad my day has been, whether I've achieved things in the world or not, he can only see me one way. Perfect. Why? Because I am in Christ, saved by grace. He can only ever see me through the filter of Christ's blood. He can only see me as perfect. It was completely liberating. The second verse that spoke to me so clearly was Ephesians 1 verse 5. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. See, God taught me afresh. He can only know me one way. He can only know me as his son. Because through Christ's cross, I have been adopted into God's family. You know, under the Roman law in which the Ephesian church lived, when someone was adopted, they lost the rights of their old family. And they were given the rights of the legitimate son of the new family. Well, pre-Christ, who's our old family? Adam. What are the rights of Adam's family? The wages of sin is death. Who's our new family? God. 
Who's the legitimate son? Jesus Christ. What are the rights of Christ to rule and reign over this universe for eternity? And you are a co-heir with that Jesus, with that Christ. You know, when the world compares me and Justin Welby, there's no way that a hospital chaplain is going to get a looking compared with the Archbishop of Canterbury. But when God looks at me and Justin, what does Father see? He sees his boys. He sees his sons. He sees co-heirs with Christ. That is what being saved by grace has achieved. This truth has brought me so much freedom. It has welded so much wholeness into me because the journey was a painful journey. There were times in 2008 when I think that the journey was complete, that I was free. But I learned that God doesn't do 60% jobs. God doesn't even do 99% jobs. God's only in the business of doing 100% jobs on us. And so he would lovingly bring along to church more gifted preachers, better leaders, exposing in me areas of pride and insecurity that still existed. But because I was committed to this journey, I was allowing God to drive the truth train to my heart. I would choose to run into Father's heart where Father would remind me that these were just roles, important roles, because they were bringing glory to his name. And that whatever that role was, whether it was standing on a platform or cleaning the toilets, it was a privilege to carry in the light, to carry out in light of the cross. But all that mattered to Father God was that I was his son. And he had bought me. That's the third truth I want to leave with you this morning. Ephesians 1, 7. In him I have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins. That word redemption, it literally means, it literally means to be purchased out of slavery. What was the price of my redemption? What was the price of your redemption? The blood. The blood of who? The blood of Christ. You are worth the very blood of God. The very blood of God. Do you know what that makes you? It makes you priceless. And day in and day out, as I kept meditating on these truths, transformation happened. Insecurity lost its grip on me because no longer was my value based upon how well a sermon was received or whether I was asked to be in a meeting or part of a leadership team. No, my value was now in Christ. For in Christ, I knew that I knew that I knew that I'm chosen. I am loved as a son. I am priceless in my God's eyes. And as a result, wholeness replaced my insecurities. Eventually, this truth train reached the station of my heart. And the day arrived when I was ready. Ready for a platform. Ready for a title. Ready for a leadership role. <laughs> no. ready to serve with Jesus.
I was ready to serve my Jesus knowing that this is the greatest privilege of my life. That to do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do was for his glory, not mine. So can I just say, look, if any of that resonates with you today, can I just give you some advice? And I know some of you are a lot older than me and I, uh, I don't mean to teach you things that you already know. But for someone who has genuinely done this journey and done it through the pain and done it through the, the hard yards, this is the best bit of advice I can give to anyone. Start each day at the foot of the cross. Never graduate from the school of Calvary. Because when you see your Savior's face, when you see those arms that flung stars into space, surrendering to cruel nails, when you hear that cry of the son, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you understand that the Godhead for all eternity, that had been one, that had been holy, that had been united, in that moment the son took upon himself my sin and your sin that the son took upon himself the father's wrath. The father had only said to him for eternity, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. When you consider that love, when you consider that grace, starts to remind us that he can see us in light of the cross in but one way. Perfect. It's not because you've been really good. <laughs> because he sees you through the filter of Christ's blood. He knows you as his son, as his daughter. He has won you for eternity. He has purchased you. Sin is no longer your master. He bought you from the slave master's sin and he paid with the blood of his son for you are worth the very blood of God. This is how he sees you. This is how he knows you. This is how he values you. And if anything that I've said today resonates with you, camp at the foot of the cross. Remind yourself that you are saved by grace alone. And then meditate, marvel at the wonder of what that grace means, of what it is achieved, and the freedom that you can live in. Amen. I think it'd be good to worship. Why don't we just stand? Let's just let the team lead us now.